Please open your Bibles today to the book of 1 Kings, chapter 10. And if you want to find that in your pew Bible, you can turn to page 541, 1 Kings chapter 10. I'm going to start in verse 14. Last week I preached on the Queen of Sheba and I explained that that was the high point of Solomon's kingship. She looks at all the glory of Solomon. Now we're going to start going downhill into Solomon's fall. And this section of Scripture begins the last section of Solomon's life. And this is where he falls into sin later in his life. And what I want to do for you is read to you a lengthy passage of Scripture because I think it would be important to catch the, the magnitude of what Solomon does and what he, how he gathers things for himself, and it leads to his fall. And it starts in 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 14. And before I read this passage as well, I want to uh, have you write down a verse or remember it. It's Deuteronomy chapter 17, starting in verse 14. Don't turn there, but I want to tell you about it. In the book of the law, in the book of Deuteronomy, God told them that when kings come about, there's three things I do not want your kings to do. I don't, do not want your kings to develop gold for themselves. Number one, I do not want your kings to gather horses for themselves. Number two, and I do not want your kings to gather wives for themselves. Number three, gold, horses, and wives. That's what God said do not do as a the law of kingship in the book of Deuteronomy. And the passage I'm going to read to you right now, that's exactly what Solomon does. He gathers gold, horses, and wives. Okay. And I'm going to read from verse 14 in chapter 10 all the way to chapter 11, verse 8. It says this, The weight of the gold that came to Solomon yearly was 666 talents of gold. Besides that, from the traveling merchants, from the income of traders, from all the kings of Arabia and from the governors of the country. And King Solomon made 200 large shields of hammered gold. 600 shekels of gold went into each shield. He also made 300 shields of hammered gold. Three minas of gold went into each shield. The king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. Notice that's not God's house. That's a house that he has over there in Lebanon. Moreover, the king made a great throne of ivory and overlaid it with pure gold. The throne has six steps, and the top of the throne was round <clears throat> at the back. There were armrests on either side of the place of the seat, and two lions stood beside the armrest. That was probably carvings of, of lions. Twelve lions stood there, one on each side of the six steps. Nothing like this had been made for any other kingdom. All of King Solomon's drinking vessels were gold, and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold. Not one was silver, for this was accounted as nothing. The silver was nothing in the days of Solomon. For the king had merchant ships at, at sea with the fleet of Hiram, once every three years, the merchant ships came bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and monkeys. Some translations say peacocks. And so Solomon, King Solomon, surpassed all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom. Now, 
all the earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his heart. Each man brought his present, articles of silver and gold, garments, armor, spices, horses, mules, at a rate year by year. And Solomon gathered chariots and horsemen. And he had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen, whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king at Jerusalem. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones. And he made cedar trees as abundant as the sycamores, which are in the lowland. Also, Solomon had horses imported from Egypt and Kevev. And the king's merchants bought them to Kevev at the current price. Now, the ch- a chariot that was imported from Egypt cost 600 shekels of silver and a horse 150. And thus... Through their agents, they exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Syria. These are places that would later become enemies of Israel. I'm letting you know that. Just to, That's going to come back to bite them. Verse 1. But King Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and the Hittites. From the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, You shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. But Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. And his wives turned his heart away. And his heart was not loyal to the Lord as God, as was the heart of his father David. For Solomon went after the Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Moloch, the abomination of the Ammonites. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not fully follow the Lord, as did his father David. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, on the hill that is east of Jerusalem. That's the Garden of Gethsemane. Mount of Olives puts an idol there. And he put it there for Molech, the abomination of the people of Ammon. And he did likewise for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we pray you'll give us your wisdom and insight into this passage of Scripture and see how it rightly applies to us. Well, today what I want to talk about <clears throat> is... I want to break down this passage of Scripture and its points in three points. And that is, I want to talk about Satan's favorite sins, Satan's favorite strategy, and also Satan's symbol. You could say maybe it's his favorite symbol as well. But let's talk about Satan's favorite sins. And notice the list here that is mentioned in Deuteronomy chapter 7 is also now repeated here. In the book of 1 Kings, chapter 10, and the list is about gold, it's about horses, and it's about wives. Well, why is God so concerned about this? What are these, these sins that's, that Solomon commits that we can say is Satan's favorite sins? Well, what I wanted, what I wanted to do today is translate the, the meaning of this. Translate the meaning of gold. Translate the meaning of horses and wives. And what's really going on here? Gold... Translated means this, money. Solomon was not to accumulate money so much for himself as king like this. He does it to such an extreme. 
You think about money in the ancient world. There was no paper money that you would have. You would have hard currency. You would have precious stones. And the most valuable currency would be gold. So you have here, to translate these sins, you can say the abuse of money. Now, what's so wrong about horses? Why does God not talk about donkeys and cattle and other things that a king is not to accumulate? Why is he focused in the book of Deuteronomy on horses, saying kings are not to, to uh, grab hold of horses? Well, you can, you can translate horses this way and call it power. Power, political power and military power is often achieved through warfare, horses. You can put your enemies at bay. You can keep your political power with the military. Um, that's what is going on with the issue of horses. What would happen with Israel's king developed massive and massive amounts of horses? Who would they start trusting in? They would start trusting in their horses and their military might, not in God. It reminds you of Psalm 20, verse 7, where it says, Some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. So there's an abuse of power that's going to come if a king comes and develops such a massive offensive military with horses. Notice that walls are for what? Defense. That's a good strategy of protection. But an offensive strategy and going out there and making war in other places and things and having power, an illegitimate power, that's what God was concerned about when he says, do not gather the horses. Now, what about all the wives? What's wrong with having a wife or wives? The answer to this really is the issue is sexual immorality. He did not want the king to gather a bunch of women to himself and become sexually immoral. Notice that in this chapter, chapter 11, Solomon gathers a total of a thousand women surrounding himself. And, he also, and they lead him to all their false gods. So whenever you look at, that, look at these sins of the gold, of the issues of the gold, the horses and the women, and you translate them, you can say this, the fall of Solomon resulted in this, an inappropriate accumulation of money, power, and sexual immorality. All those, that unholy trinity brought his destruction, total destruction upon his life later in his life. Now you may think, and this is just Old Testament, right? Old Testament law, Old Testament concerns, and this is just ancient stuff. You know full well the abuse of money, the abuse of power, the Sexual immorality, how often, how many times in the news does that bring down people, bring down presidents, bring down kings, bring down governors, bring down parents, bring down pastors, bring down anybody, any person who abuses money, abuses power, who commits sexual immorality and plagues their life. It's, it's total destruction where it comes upon them. This is why I would call this, we're dealing with here, is Satan's favorite sins. So you can also see this is not simply about Solomon and some ancient law. It's about what everybody struggles with to some form or degree or fashion. It's what the world is plagued with. This is why this passage of Scripture is so appropriate to learn from and to think about and apply to us. Now let me move on to this. Let me summarize for you 
Satan's strategy with all of this? How does Satan use all this to bring about such destruction in people's lives? And here's the answer. Satan takes something good and then he makes, makes it out of balance or out of bounds. Think of that. He takes something good and gets you to take it out of balance or out of bounds. Let me explain to you the gold or the money issue. The point is this. When you go back to Genesis, God made the world with money in it. Not paper money, but rock money. There's precious stones in the world that are more valuable than gravel. In Genesis chapter 2, God told Adam that, hey, there's gold down there in the land of Havilah, and the land of Havilah is where the exodus occurred. God wanted Adam to go down there and find the gold, use the gold rightly. And God even said this, the gold in the land of Havilah is good. It's good gold. There's good precious stones there. Even if, if there was no sin in the world, you still would use some hard currency, some silver, some gold, some precious stones to, to, to pay some young boy to mow your yard. Okay, there's a, a, a way of currency is good. Money is good. God made the world with valuable stones to use for currency, for money, and also for decorating the temple and, and things like that. That would come later in the book of Exodus. So that's how God made the world. But what is Satan's strategy with money, with gold, precious stones, and, and the acts of currency? There's two things he would like to do. One of two things. He likes to make it go out of balance, meaning this. Satan wants people to love money more than God. Love money more than others. And put money ahead of family. Put money ahead of others. Satan wants you not to pay your tithes and offerings to others. He doesn't want you to be generous. He wants you to love it so much you become a hoarder or something like that, and you're stingy and you're known for that, and you saw your character and absorbs your mindset and it consumes you all the time. That's out of balance. It's a love of money that is out of balance. Another way that Satan uses this balancing act to make it out of balance is sometimes he'll get people to hate money so much that they want to destroy it. That's exactly what communism tried to do. Karl Marx actually hated money. He tried to think that he could make a world without money. Let's just destroy money. Let's destroy currency and make everyone equally poor. That's what communism does with currency and money. It's either So you think about Satan's strategy. Either love it too much... Or hate it too much. If you do one of those two things, then he has won. <laughs> you will shipwreck your life. You love it too much or you hate it too much. It's out, of, it's out of balance. That's how Satan's strategy is against gold or currency or money. What's Satan's strategy when it comes to horses or to what? Power or to authority? Well... He loves to make this also either out of balance or out of bounds. Let's go back to Genesis again. God made the world with a pathway to power, a pathway to kingship, a pathway to ascending to a throne. All Adam had to do to get on that pathway was to wait. Wait on God to eat from that tree of power. 
That tree of power is a tree of knowledge, a tree of kingship, a tree of wisdom. And if he just waited for God's time, then it would have come. Adam, come and have it. Now you're ready. But Adam didn't wait for power. He grabbed for it out of bounds. It was out of time. He was not ready for it. And Satan got him and the woman to grab for it before they could handle it rightly. So you see how it's not that power is bad. It's about how is it out of balance or is it out of bounds? Some people are in positions of power and all they want is more and more and more power and they're consumed with power. I do remember I was in San Antonio, Texas one time. Uh, We went into a museum area and there was a quote from Santa Ana who attacked the Alamo. And the quote said, if I was God, I would ask for more. And it said Santa Ana. That's exactly his mindset. No matter how much he grabbed onto, he only wanted more power, more control. You think about all the rulers in history who were notorious and evil and murderous. And all they would do is kill every single thing in their way to grab power and ascend and step on anybody in their way and trample them underfoot. Some people's vice is the money. They just will kill for that at all cost. Some people's vice is the power grab. They will trample on any person at all cost and grab for it. And they're not content with, with the little power they have in life. They want more and more and more. Satan loves to bring that out of balance. Or out of bounds. And then obviously the sexual issue, the, the wives or the women, Satan's favorite strategy is to bring that out of bounds always. Satan is always going to try to say, you can do this outside of marriage, before marriage. You can live with your boyfriend or girlfriend. You can do things that over here, out of bounds. He's always trying to make something out of bounds. He does that all the time. In a concerning the issue of sexual immorality. So Satan's strategy, to summarize all this, is either out of bounds or out of balance. And what does this kind of summarize, boil down to? It's a type of counterfeit. Think of this. A counterfeit is not the real deal. A counterfeit is not legit. It's a type of evil. And it, it leads me now to my third topic today, and that is Satan's favorite Symbol. Well, actually, I probably shouldn't say Satan's favorite symbol because Satan's not the one making it up. It's God symbolizing this evil. And it comes from the number 666. Look in chapter 10, 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 14. How much talents of gold did King Solomon gather? The weight of the gold that came to King Solomon yearly was 666. 666 talents of gold. What's happening here? As the Bible introduces the fall of Solomon, it's taken that famous number that you always heard about, the mark of the beast, and applying it to Solomon, saying 666. It's giving you a little wink, a little heads up of where we're going in the Bible here. And it heads to this fall of Solomon. Over and over in the Bible, the Bible uses the number 6 to talk about the sinfulness of man in certain degrees or fashions. For example... Goliath, when David hit or fought Goliath, Goliath was six cubits high. The head of his spear was 600 shekels of iron. So there's a presence of evil, and the Bible is using the number six in his multiples to describe the evil of Goliath. 
later in 2 Samuel chapter 21, verse 20, there were some other giants they had to fight. One of them had six toes and six fingers. Again, the number six being used to describe evil. In Nebuchadnezzar's time, Nebuchadnezzar and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the story, you remember, of the big image that Nebuchadnezzar said, if you worship, you must worship this. If you don't do it, you're going to die and be thrown in the fire. That image that Nebuchadnezzar made was six cubits wide and 60 cubits high. So over and over in the Bible, we use the number six to describe evil or a type of counterfeit. And here it's being mentioned by Sol- for Solomon describing the amount of gold that comes into his kingdom. Now, let me answer a question. Why is the number six so important like this? What, what's the root of this? Well, the issue is that mankind was made on the sixth day of creation, but man failed to enter into God's rest on the seventh day. Adam is the man of day six. Jesus is the man of day seven, meaning this. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus brings completion to God's creation. Jesus opens the gates and brings you into the Sabbath. Adam fails to enter the Sabbath rest. He's created on day six, and therefore the number six in the Bible is a reference to fallen man, a man who fails to enter into the rest of God. This prepares you to study the book of Revelation in chapter 13. In the book of Revelation chapter 13, you will know that it talks about the mark of the beast. And that mark of the beast, the number of the beast is 666. And so what the Bible is doing, it's echoing back and alluding to Solomon and reminding you that Solomon becomes like a beast. He becomes beasty, so to speak, in his, in his reign. And also, guess who also became a beast in his reign? Nebuchadnezzar. He sets up that image. He also becomes like a beast. He loses his mind becomes like a beast. So when people fall, they become, they become beastly. Let me explain to you what happens in Revelation chapter 13 and explain how, to, how it applies today. And this is what I'll end my sermon with in its application. In Revelation chapter 13, Satan sets up a counterfeit. He sets up a counterfeit trinity. Uh, there's the Father, the Son, and the Spirit that we worship. Well, there is a, a sea beast that is fatherly in, in Revelation chapter 13. And then there is a land beast... That is like the Son, the Son of God, he is, but He's a counterfeit. And then there's an image of the beast. There's three beasts. There's a sea beast, there's a land beast, and there's an image of the beast. And what happens is, is Satan gives authority and power to the sea beast. And the power is given to the land beast. And then breath comes into the image of the beast. And then the people are, t- are told to worship Not the sea beast, but the image of the beast. And if you do not worship the image of the beast, then you cannot buy or sell anything unless you have a mark of the beast. And then you can have currency. You can buy and sell. You can have interaction with the image of that beast. Now, the way this applies is it applies, first of all, to the apostles. The sea beast is Rome coming out of the nations of the Gentiles. The land beasts are the Jewish rulers and the Herods that came in there and ruling over the land of Israel. And the image of the beast at the time of the apostles was the temple. The temple was ordained with gold and spent years and years and years 
to build. They built it for 46 years whenever Jesus was mentioned it in John chapter 2. They continued to build upon that temple for another 30-something years, well during the time of the apostles, and Rome's thumbprint and image was all around there, and the Jewish people thought it was glorious and awesome. And just a few years after they finished building it, Rome tears it down. That's how that image of the beast applies in the time of the apostles. It was an idol. It was something that they wanted to worship and magnify. And they were leading people to do it and forcing people to do it. And if you don't have the mark of it, if you don't identify with it, then we will kill you. And that's why they killed the apostles. They killed the Christians in the city of Jerusalem because they refused to bow down to the image of the beast in their generation. This is to, I'm explaining this to you to show you that the image of the beast, the 666 in the book of Revelation chapter 13, is not simply something that, you know, for the future, or it's not something that that hasn't happened yet. The image of the beast happened with Solomon. The image of the beast happened with with Nebuchadnezzar. The image of the beast and 666 happened with, with the apostles, and it happens in every single generation in different types, in different forms, in different fashions. What happens is, is Satan likes to come in and pervert something and force you to conform, force you to bow down, and say, if you don't identify yourself this way, then you will die, or you'll be kicked out, or you'll be fired, or you will not conform. You have to believe what we believe. That's what's going on with the 666. And so it applies in every generation. You think about like Nazi Germany, how it applies to Nazi Germany. If you are not a Nazi, you're dead. You have to conform. Okay? That's what's going on. Now to apply this personally and also apply it in our culture, you see this even now. It's a type of the image of the beast. Whereas there's places in our country, there's schools you can go to, there's businesses that you try to work in, where they force you to believe, they want to force you to believe exactly what they believe. If you do not believe in wokeism, if you do not believe in transgenderism, if you don't believe in homosexuality, then there are certain places in the country right now where you will be fired, you'll be terminated, you'll be canceled. There are places where they are trying to force you to compromise your free, your free speech, your religion, and to identify you as something so that now you can buy and sell with them. Now you can have currency with them. Now you can have status. I just spoke to somebody on, on Friday, a friend of mine, who said that his son went over to California, and in his business that they were working with, the type of business he was in, it was extremely difficult to work with anybody in that business unless you totally agreed with every single thing about the leftist agenda. He ended up leaving Los Angeles and, left and lives somewhere else now, but the point is, is that it was a type of that mark, of that identification. So when the Bible takes this imagery and starts to apply it to the church, it applies in every single generation. Uh, just because it's an image of the beast, so to speak, in, in culture, does not mean it's the end of the world. It just means that that's how the world has always operated ever since the fall of man. So get used to it, Christian. Stand out. Stand your ground. Have wisdom to be as wise as a serpent, but innocent as a dove. Do not compromise your, your faith. Stand strong in Christ. And know that whenever it's time to stand your ground on certain issues, have the wisdom to die on the right heel. And don't die needlessly. Don't bring the heat upon yourself needlessly. At the same time, there's a way that you can be wise as a serpent, but innocent as a dove. 
A good prayer is that God will give our children wisdom as they go to college, as they grow up and move out of here and go to trade school, wherever they do in life, that they'll have the, the wisdom to know how to be salt and light in certain areas. Because there's going to be persecution that comes later in this country where if you do not conform to the belief system, then they're going to try to punish you. People are already trying to do that in a legal system, in a legal fashion, trying to punish Christians for not believing the system or the agenda. And so we need to pray that our children will have the strength, have the wisdom, and all of us have the integrity not to be marked with the image of the beast. That's how it applies personally. And to encourage you a little bit as well, uh, remember Solomon. If you identify, if you get out of balance, if you do things out of God's law, then it only brings you down like Solomon. And God starts bringing in enemies. He starts bringing in all these things around you, and it's, it, it will just destroy your life. And that's what happened with Solomon. But later, he did repent. And then he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes and said, don't do that. I was a fool. And he also wrote the book of Proverbs and all these things. But there's a lot of positive and a lot of negative to learn from the life of King Solomon. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you'll strengthen us, Lord, with your spirit. That you'll give all of us your wisdom and integrity. That we live in tumultuous times in such a way that there are there are enemies of your church and enemies of this country, even within this country. We pray, Father, that you'll give Christians the integrity and the wisdom to speak rightly and to speak winsomely and knowing, Lord, how to be salt and light in this generation. We pray, Father, for the, the beauty of the future, that you will bring a glor more glorious future, Lord, through the preaching of the gospel, through righteous legislation, and that you will bring the, the evil of the wicked upon their own heads, not upon the heads of the righteous. And we pray, Father, that you will give strength to all your Christians in whatever area you place them, Lord, to be salt and light. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.